Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Talking About Podcast. I'm Sean Kennedy. Back with me on the line is Liberty Baller's own Dave Early. Dave, how are you doing? I'm good. Good to hear. Yeah, we're just a couple weeks away from training camp, coming down the home stretch, but we still got some fun news to talk about today. Uh, first thing I wanted to talk with you about was Daryl Morey had an interview with John Clark on the uh, Takeoff with John Clark segment, and I thought he had an interesting soundbite that. I'm going to read to you here. Uh, I, I transcribed it in full. So, Oh, wow. <laughs> All right, for, it's yeah, not too long, but uh, for anyone that looks on this, the post on the site for the pod, this episode, uh, I, I also transcribed it there. So you can also read it, but here, if here's get, what, if we get another 10 subscriptions, we'll get a producer who will do all this for you. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're a ways away from that. We're <laughs> um, but yeah, for, for now still, still plugging away on my own, but here, but here it is. I'd say the biggest surprise are the players who can't play here referring to Philadelphia. Of course, it's actually not helpful to me. The more options I have, the better, but I start, but I do think I'm starting to learn and I do love it about Philadelphia because I do think it gets the best out of our team. And I've seen it with not only our team, the Eagles and the Phillies. And I never understood this being in Houston when people would say, oh, you need to have a special mindset to play in Philly. You need to have a special mindset to play in maybe New York, although I think that's less true. Honestly, I can only speak to Philadelphia because I've been here now. I do think I really do pay attention to the mindset of the players. Can they handle playing in Philadelphia? Because I do think it's a different thing. So the first initial reaction, Dave, from a lot of people was, is this a subtweet to Ben Simmons, who infamously seemed not to handle the pressure of playing in Philadelphia, even when he was with Brooklyn, it came and there was a lot of speculation, oh, is he going to play? And that got quickly squashed. Of course, it was later determined that he had a legitimate back injury and required surgery after the season. Um, but so yeah, the we we know what happened with Ben and Philly. We don't need to dive into that. Do, do you do you first before we we get into the broader kind of conversation around the mindset to play in Philadelphia? Do do you think Daryl was referring to Ben here? A hundred percent referring to Ben. I think he's admitted it surprised him that Ben didn't want to play um, in in Philly. You know, he he would have happily continued shopping Ben while stacking a few more wins with a better defense last year. I think probably the Sixers surprised him and everyone by being pretty good, better than expected without Simmons. Um, but I think his, I think he thought the trade value and the ultimate standings would have been better if Ben was playing Ben surprised by not wanting to. I think there's a little bit of revisionist history. I don't think it was strictly the fans is what Ben was out for. I think he really thought this is my best chance to get a trade. It's not just that really worried about the fans um but i think that is what daryl is implying for sure that you do have to have a certain mindset and then i think below that if you're reading if you get your machete out to dig through the next layer he did admit that it's not easy for him and and so you could say there's a subtweet at the fans too like my job here is a lot harder than it was in houston because our fans boo our players and i need to make sure that our player that i have the right players who can handle that if it happens yeah, it's it's interesting because there's, I guess it's kind of like a Venn diagram. Like you want to be in a big market that free agents or guys that are seeking a trade would want to come to to get more exposure, be in, you know, have access to 
bigger decision makers and under industries for their kind of like side projects and side businesses and whatever. So, so it's good to be in a big market, but you, yeah, you also don't want the kind of reputation of being a tough place to play like Philadelphia or New York, like he mentions. Um, so yeah, I guess like LA is kind of the perfect in that regard because it's, you know, entertainment capital of the world, but in a lot of ways, the, the sports scene is a little more, it's, it's less life or death there for people, I would say, because there's, there's so much else going on. And if you spend a day, if you spend a day at the <laughs> beach and then you go to a ball game, it's like, Hey, this is fun. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, it's more of a treated like the recreational entertainment. It, it is in reality than the thing that's, you know, determining your, your mental well being. Like... <laughs> I, I went to a Jets, uh, chargers game once it was a playoff game and the jets won on the road this is back in like 09 or whatever the jets made the afc championship back, game back back when the jets won games on the road exactly <laughs> and it was a huge game and everyone back home it, this was life or death it was like the jets have been good for the first time since the 60s blah 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 joe namath and then i remember sitting next to in the stadium this dude who was like i don't i mean i don't care i'm going surfing tomorrow and I was like, <laughs> oh it's different out here yeah <laughs> Uh, the vibes are, are definitely different. Yeah. So I, maybe it's just beach areas like Miami where they, they, they famously show up in the second quarter for playoff games even, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that's just what it is. You just got to go in a big city near where, where they have a beach nearby. Um, so, you know, Covington recently came out and said like, you know, the fans wrote him here and he was a polarizing figure, which is crazy because he's been perennially, one of the best three and D players in the game. He shoots a good percentage, but the Sixers fans don't love streak players. And I think that's gotten exacerbated a little bit with doc, who seems to be a huge believer in the hot hand. You know, there's been some studies on the hot hand. It's like this hot button issue in analytics communities. It's like, if you've missed three threes in a row, there's a good chance doc's going to bench you first of all, especially if you're Matisse Thybul. And you know, that could impact a guy like D'Anthony Melton next year. TJ Tucker is not a volume shooter, so he could miss two threes in a row. And fans kind of got on Danny Green. So you wonder, um, does Daryl have to factor things like that in? Like, can DeAnthony handle it if he's missed his first six threes of a game and the, and the crowd starts getting on him? That wouldn't happen in Memphis. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, I guess that leads into the the second kind of topic around that. So what what do you think is the the correct mindset to succeed in Philadelphia. What would what would be your your summarization of the right the right mentality for it for success? Uh, I I kind of liked it when the players play back at it. Like I know Horford and Joel and maybe Tobias have all shushed the fans, and, and I know the fans didn't all like that. But I think that's something that you don't mind seeing from your players because you don't want them to be completely immune. I saw the quote that Russell Wilson had returning to Seattle. He didn't play especially well. A lot of the fans booed him. And after the game, he was like, look, I'm just happy to be here. You know, God's blessed me. And I was like, I'd rather see a little bit more genuous, just appreciation that it either bothered you or didn't, you know, just let us know. And if you don't have, don't feel you have to hide it that's not a bad thing. Like you look at a guy like Kyrie Irving who clearly performs at his best in these brutally hostile environments. Right. And he, he doesn't play down to it. He kind of adopts that WWE 
he, villain heel and uh, and gives it back to the crowd and plays his best. Reggie Miller used to also, and I think that's kind of the fire you're looking for. Yeah, you, you, I think the fire, or I would kind of categorize it as like showing you care, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and people want to see their athletes in the city like care as much as they do. So if you're just kind of like nonchalant and like whatever it doesn't really bother me this isn't like the biggest priority in my life which i think there are a lot of other things a lot like a lot of them revolving around shooting obviously but i think the biggest thing that turned people off to ben in a lot of ways was just he, he really didn't have that fire he just never seemed like he did all be, he could to hide it if he yeah, did yeah being it, it just always seemed like from afar that being the best at his craft and, and being a winner was never the most important thing to him. It was more about like being a star, being in the limelight. Um, that, 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 that that's just how it seemed to people, whether that's yeah. true or not, that I think that's just how, how it came across. So there's that. And then I, I think you also have to be able to kind of just like shrug it off. Like if, if fans do boo you, you can't take it personally and you have to be able to say like that just it just comes with the territory. They're gonna they're gonna boo you when you're underperforming. They're gonna cheer you like you're a hero when you are playing well and and just not having the mindset that like hey this is a personal attack and, and just kind of realizing that this is just how it is. I think I think that's a big yeah. part of it. I agree with Daryl that it's not always helpful. I do think it's another challenge for him. I know that the PR version of this filters out the killers, this filters out the best guys and brings out the best of the guys who can handle it. But I think the flip side is something we see when the Sixers get tight in the playoffs. Like it might happen in a huge game and no one is playing especially well. Like maybe Tyrese Maxey has a flash and the crowd gets kind of quiet and tight, and maybe a smattering of booze after Danny Green airballs the shot. Um, and I think then you'll see another team, like they'll flip on a game in you know Oklahoma, and they will will their team. It, it seems like the crowd is deliberately trying to will their team back from a 10-point hole, or they might do that in Toronto. I'm like, all right, our guys are down. We need to bring a spark that the players don't have. And in Philly, it often goes the other way. Players get tight, the crowd gets quiet. And then you get a library atmosphere that I think can compound the impact. So I think you want the players who can handle it. And then you want the, you want the audience on the particular night to say, I'm going to cheer here no matter what. Yeah. Ideally I, I do agree that the fan bases of sports teams in the city, it, it can be a little counterproductive at times, uh, especially in, in big moments where it's already a tense or anxious environment. And, and then you're only kind of, tacking on to that anxiety by by your reaction to what's going on mm-hmm. if if if, it, if it's february regular season game and teams just coming out flat and looks like garbage yeah go ahead and boo it's not i, I think that's perfectly within reason but yeah there were there were definitely times that it, it seemed counterproductive um, yeah i'm thinking of like game four 2019 at the crib you're hosting toronto Kawhi leonard is in fierce robot mode Tobias Harris is like four for 11 and the crowd is quiet and it's like, oh, okay, this isn't going to help. You need the crowd to be so deliriously loud that the officials can't get calls right because that tends to work in the home team's favor. Yep. Yeah. You, you want that, that home court advantage to, to get that home cooking calls. You yes. want to be, you, you want to be lifted. <laughs> <laughs> you you want to be lift. Yeah. That's the, 
that was the Seahawks Packers game mm-hmm. you're referring to. Yeah, that was it was too loud to ref. <laughs> they just give they just give it to the home team. Yeah. Uh, there was that now infamous picture where the refs one one guy lifted his arms <laughs> yeah. and one guy's called incomplete at the same time. And they, the the photographer got this the, the, the great shot of that. Um yeah, they were just so flustered, didn't know what to do. Uh yeah, you, you definitely want your fan base lifting those guys up. But I, I you come here and as a, as an executive, if you're in Daryl's shoes, you just got to realize that's how it is. You're not going to, you're not going to, you would like to see some tweaks to the, the culture of the fans, but it, it's not going to happen. You just got to accept it as it is. I thought um, it was also interesting that he was like, and less so in New York, he's almost <laughs> jealous. People are always talking about how it's such a tough market, but maybe he's looking at like what happens when DeAndre Bembry goes on a cold streak in Brooklyn and no one cares at all. Yeah. I think Brooklyn, because of, the recency of you know the franchise coming becoming Brooklyn from being in the New Jersey Nets, I think that just doesn't have the same kind of like built-in history and anxious ridden fan base as like the Knicks or like if you're talking about the Yankees or whatever. Uh, yeah. I, so yeah, I think I think Brooklyn, even though it is in New York, I just don't think it has that same kind of uh, the the angst and the the ride or die fan base that can only come with like following a team for decades and, ha- and growing up in your, in your dad and your, and your, or your parents were huge fan bases of the team. And like, y- you can't have that yet in Brooklyn. It's just not possible. So, right. You have that in New York, you know, I live in New York and I see it here. There are the ride or die fans, of course, but if you go to a Knicks game, there's a lot of people there to see the opposing team. There's a lot of people there that seem like they're just tourists. Like, Hey, let's see a Knicks game. And, yeah. they, and they just cheer really loud the whole game. And it doesn't feel like when you're sitting in the nosebleeds at, at Wells, it's different. Yep, it is. Um, and, and the last thing I want to say is regarding like the right mentality is just, you gotta, you gotta be good at pandering. Like <laughs> fans really eat that stuff up when you like your Sixers guy and you throw out the first pitch at the Phillies game, or like you're spotted at an Eagles game and all you have to say is like, these are the best fans in the world. They, they want me to play my best and they demand it. And I'm going to give it, give it everything I have because they work hard to afford the tickets and, and they, they deserve it. And that's and really I all you have to say. And, and they'll laugh it up. They'll let me know, but I need that push too. And that helps me. Yeah. yeah the full line. It's really easy. Like Bryce, Bryce Harper is, has been perfect at this ever since he arrived. Um, Sirianni head coach of the Eagles has, has been great at it. Like it, it's not hard. It's there's a lane and you stick to it. And it, it more often than not will lead you on a, on a, a path to a great relationship with the fan base. Um, so yeah, that's, that was, so I, that was Daryl's comments on it. I thought that was just an interesting thing to touch on. Um, before we shift away from Ben Simmons, though, we, we mentioned him there. Spike Eskin also brought this up on Twitter that DraftKings has a prop number of minutes that Ben will play in the Brooklyn opener against New Orleans, which is on October 19th. So just a little over a month away now, and it's over under 31 minutes. So I I thought that'd be interesting to kind of just get your take on. What do you, what do you think? Do you think over under 31 minutes for Ben in the opener is a smart bet? Oh, I think that's a tough one. I, I would take the under, um, I think, well, there's a chance that the games will blow out and then the under is easy one way or the other. Then there's the chance that they want to be relatively conservative. They 
were not that way with a guy like James Harden, but they were very much that way with a guy like Kevin Durant, who missed the full a full season healing from his Achilles surgery, and he only played in half the games of following. So if he even had a tight hamstring, he'd miss like a handful of games. I think the wise thing to do after Ben did a, a mental health slash holdout in Philadelphia, but then he flared up a herniated disc, I think it is L4, um, that required surgery. So I, I wouldn't be throwing him right back into the fire, even if he said he was ready. I'd be a little uh, cautious there. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I find that line really curious. It seems like an easy under for me. Um, even, even in his last season, he played in 2021, he only averaged 32 minutes a game in the regular season. So it's not like, Mm. it's not like this line of 31 is abnormally low. And then for all the reasons you mentioned, yeah, he's coming off back surgery. So why would you push him? Like you want to be conservative and kind of ramp him up over time, like see how he reacts, um, to to... stop. So you need to play Nick Claxton. They're not going to mesh perfectly. Yeah, so you got a lot of different rotational things to kind of figure out and kind of experiment with. Um, and yeah, like you said, if, if, if it's a blowout, either way, you're going to kind of rest your guys in the fourth quarter. You're not going to get get a high minutes total in that regard. So yeah, just seemed like an easy under. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I just wanted never, to make sure that there wasn't like a counter argument you can make, but I, I, I didn't see one. You get a good payout on those though. It's like you bet 20 bucks to win 14 or 15. It's like, why bother with those? Uh, it was only minus one one fifteen on okay. either side. There wasn't really juice um, heavily towards the under at all. So, yeah, just thought that was interesting. Um, I'd rather bet on the Eagles to win the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I I always hate any kind of uh, like season long bets because I don't like my money to just be sitting there for months and not be able to access it. True, true. But yeah, uh, I I wouldn't make the bet now because. I don't want to have to wait till October 20th to, to cash it out, even though I do think it the under is a pretty easy play. But I need yeah. those season-long bets to offset my daily bets. <laughs> <laughs> you make the smart, like, uh, calculated moves in your long, and then in the moment you're like, oh, it's Thursday night. I should make a play on this Thursday night football game. I really don't know, have too much of a feeling on, but I'm going to be watching it, so I should, I should yes. bet something. <laughs> yeah, when, when Anthony Davis got hurt on Valentine's Day, I bet on the Suns to win the West, and that worked out, and that offset all my bets on the Sixers on a nightly basis. There you go. Yeah, the, the in-the-moment passion uh, bets don't tend to work out <laughs> as, as well. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our advertisers, and then when we get back, <clears throat> we're going to have some, some more directly Sixers-related discussion uh, leading up to the season. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, and we're back. So, Dave, look, the the rotation I feel like is pretty much set now that now that Trez Harrell is a Sixer. The signing was made official earlier this week, so it seems like you got your starting five: Harden, Maxi, PJ Tucker, Tobias, Embiid. You got Trez backing up Embiid. You got Melton, 
House, probably Thibel and Niang, and then one more kind of like Quirkma, Shake Milton from that group. And that's probably the 10 they're rolling into the into the season with. So wanted to ask you, do you see any challenges potentially that that rotation would face? Any like fit concerns between certain rotations or bench groupings or or whatever else? What what, what are your thoughts when you when you see the how the rotation uh looks to be breaking down? Yeah, I think they I think they need a trade. I think they um I, I don't love the idea. And I agree with you. I think the closing lineup, more importantly than the starting lineup, because, you know, maybe they decide to play Melton as a starter. But I do think the closing lineup with, with Doc Rivers especially is going to include P.J. Tucker, right? Like, you're penciling in Joe Allen James. I think you can pencil in Maxie. I think you could pencil in Tobias. Then the, the last question is, is it Tucker? And Tucker – is a veteran who probably is going to earn that role regardless of how he performs. I mean, I shouldn't have said earn like doc's going to play him in to close games. And I think you lack floor spacing with those lineups. Like it's going to be easy. Like we last saw to shade and make life extremely difficult for James Harden and Joel Embiid because you're not terrified of Maxie Harris and Tucker as a trio of th- as three-point bombers. Maxie will let it fly. Tucker will let a couple per game fly. He'll certainly let, the, let them fly from the corners, but not at high volume. Tobias definitely wants to bounce it first. Um, and so the, the, that's trouble right there from a floor-spacing standpoint. And on the other end, perimeter defense is lacking then because – Tobias, as well as he played against Siakam, is not someone you're really comfortable putting on a guy like Bradley Beal, right? If you were playing a team with perimeter scores, a team like the Bulls, it's got multiple threats on the wing. And Tucker is also more of a stretch four naturally than he is a three. So there's another issue there from, and obviously Harden has his limitations. So the floor spacing and the perimeter defense, I think, will be issues with their projected starting closing lineup. Yeah, uh, Tom West and I kind of dove into closing lineups uh, on a pod a while back, six weeks ago or so. Um, it, it, it all signs point to it being Tucker. Like that's going to be the starting group, and for all the reasons you kind of mentioned, like Doc is going always going to lean towards the vets. Tucker, you would think, would be your wing stopper. So if you're in the in the guts of a game and you have to go up against a big wing like a like a Tatum or a Siakam like Tucker's probably go, who, who, who they're going to go with as, as their first option to slow that guy down and also Tucker's a good fit offensively in the sense that he's a very low usage guy like he's just going to spot up in the corner which you want a guy that's going to be willing to do that when you have Embiid and Harden and Maxi all on the court and you know Tobias too who according to his familial agent uh, w- wants to have the ball in his hands more and m- run more pick and rolls. But that's just not going to happen. So mm-hmm. he had to become more comfortable and accustomed to being like a spot up, uh, just rise and fire guy last, last year, especially after the Harden trade. So t- Tucker slots in really well. It's like a, a guy who's just going to be happy to, to not ever handle the ball. And once every five or six possessions, he'll, he'll get a pass in the corner and be expected to hit down, hit that shot. So in that sense, he's a good fit, but I agree with you that, 
having him and Tobias as your forwards next to Embiid, who's already going to be, you know, in the painted area a decent amount, that could be a little clunky because, you know, we've talked about this for years. You're you're effectively either calling Tobias the three or Tucker the three, and both of them would be are better suited to the four. And it just seems like the Sixers have always been stuck in a situation where their optimal lineup includes Tobias as more of a three than as a four um, based on the roster construction they have. So ideally you would prefer that like Tucker be your, your glue guy bench guy, and you would have more of a natural swing man wing type and in your starting group. And then Tobias would be your four. Um, But yeah, that's just not how the roster shakes out right now. So yeah, I agree. That could be a little clunky. Um, I'm almost worried that, there could be like an Al Horford light feeling with Tucker where you saw what he was in Boston and you really liked his ability to space the floor, but you need more of it here. And so if, you know, this Sixers team is screaming for a guy who can hit like four corner threes per game, if wide open and is Tucker that guy, he might be, but do they need him to do that more than Miami did? If so, are fans going to be disappointed? Um, Jackson Frank did a good profile on, you know, him, he was a low, he's a low volume shooter. He did have the floater working for him this year, although that might be some fool's gold there because players don't tend to shoot really well on floaters. You might regress to the mean a little bit and his best ability to switch, you know, his best ability on defense is a, a switching defense, which they might not do a ton of playing drop coverage with a guy like Joel. So there might be some fit concerns with Tucker in Philadelphia that there weren't in Miami. Um, not to say that it's going to be like a Horford level of what were you thinking? Cause he's a no brainer signing for the Sixers. But if you're projecting him as the starter and the closer, maybe, you know, maybe a little clunkier than fans are thinking right now, right off the bat. So there's could be some growing pains. Yeah. I'd expect some, an adjustment period for sure. Um, I think fortunately Tucker is a very good corner shooter. Like he's shot 38% from corner threes for his career he shot 41 percent last year and that that's pretty much all he takes like the last four years his percentage of three-point attempts that came from the corner were all around 85 to 90 percent so that that's like pretty exclusively where he shoots from um and he's above average at it so you know he just sticks to his role and yeah, I, I agree. There's going to be some growing pains because there always are when you know new players are trying to work out and develop chemistry together. But yeah, I I think just more so finding a way for these guys to all kind of coexist with one ball and have have people be willing to be spot up shooters um, more than they might ideally want to be is probably going to be the biggest challenge with the group. Yeah. Um, but yeah, otherwise I don't like defensively. I feel I feel like it'll be okay. You'd ideally like to have more of a on-ball perimeter stopper. Like Maxi's a little too undersized for that, and still kind of learning. In in you know he's still only a few years in the league, still trying to learn NBA defense and how to navigate that. And then Tucker is you know first of all up there in age and and never really the the fleet of foot guy. He's more of like the the banging forward type who can stop, stop wings, but not really guard. So I feel like that's still kind of the hole this team has had. Maybe, maybe Melton can step into that and be 
helpful in that area uh, house in, in certain matchups, but yeah, they, they still kind of lack that guy, like the, the Patrick Beverly type that people have always, you know, been standing for the Sixers to, to go after. But yeah, I, I think that's probably the biggest concern in my mind as far as the rotation. Yeah. S- sadly, there's Mikael Bridges <laughs> hole here, which we, he'd be like the perfect player they could add right now. Yeah. The, well, maybe if things continue falling apart in Phoenix with all that turmoil, then yes, <laughs> one one can hope. Um, but now he just got signed to a big new deal, so I don't expect him to be going anywhere anytime soon, unless it's like part of a KD trade or something. Um, maybe he'll force his way to Philadelphia to make it right now. <laughs> Is anyone left from the regime that traded him after 20 minutes? Because I, I feel like there would be some some hard feelings there. Yes, there are. There's yeah. there's Elton, there's Ned Collin. Yeah. Um, there's ownership. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't foresee him forcing his way here. <laughs> I know you're kind of saying that jokingly, but yeah, there has to be some some hard feelings, I would imagine. Yeah. Um all right. So next thing I wanted to, to ask you about was uh, it was brought up with Adam Silver's press conference earlier this week, which was mostly about the Robert Sarver situation, but it, it also came up that the Sixers were the investigation around the tampering charges against Philadelphia were still being or still underway. And he, he mentioned that it wasn't a complaint from a specific team that opened the investigation in the first place. It was just kind of the league seeing what was going on and, and deciding. So I get my first question is, do you believe Adam Silver when he says that, that, that another team didn't like call for this investigation? And then what's, what's your prediction on how this is going to play out? Yeah. If it's, if it's really tampering, did he specifically use that word? Because I'm not worried about that. They could look into that all they like. They need to look into every team with that stuff and slap some wrists. The problem would be if they wanted to look into what would be like salary cap circumnavigation, because that's the one that got the Minnesota Timberwolves docked like five first round picks, which, you know, if someone was like, how did James Harden take this pay cut and what did it allow them to do? And what's he going to get next year? And is that why PJ and House and Harrell are all here? Um, So that would be the one that would be a lot worse. If they just say that the Sixers had some contact early with PJ Tucker, who cares? I'll I'll read you the exact wording, and this this isn't Adam Silver's quote, but it's from Ira Winderman, who's the, the yeah. Heat beat person that kind of tweeted this out. He said Adam Silver said the investigation into the 76ers' timing of their signing of PJ Tucker is ongoing and was not opened because of a complaint from a team. So it seems like it's specifically the Tucker signing, which is more in line with previous investigations of like having conversations with a free agent and having a deal done before the the quote-unquote open window for free agency has started even though like literally everyone gets signed seconds after the windows open so it's like it's, <laughs> 601 it's, it's like an open open secret deals. that yeah so and, and keep pompey was on this like three weeks early and then mark stein and... yeah so it, it does seem like it's specifically about tucker and not and not harden and and those other kind of salary yeah cap- things that yeah. you you mentioned so and ira being on the miami beat so definitely seems like some sour grapes from a team who might have whined and then you know sixers fans will point out like you guys just lost didn't they just lose a pick for tampering <laughs> with like kyle lowry or someone so yeah they lost the second round pick so i guess time. i guess that's that's my other part of the question to you do you, do you feel like that's just going to be what happens sixers lose a second round pick and everybody moves on if that happens i think that's fine like 
take their 53rd pick away in a year and a half or two and stop looking into James Harden's pay cut because James Harden going back to Houston has left like as much money as his career earnings on the table. So to look into this 12 million too hard seems silly to me. Yeah, it's, it is silly because as we said, literally all, every team does this. It's, I, I guess you just have to be better about being circumspect and concealing it from media sources and everything else, just so it doesn't get out there. They just, they just don't, don't want it to be trumpeted to the world, the league. Mm-hmm. They, they just want it to be very much on the down low. So it's kind Maybe of like Tucker's a Tucker's agent needs a uh, reprimand. Like, why did you tell Keith? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just like, let him break the story. At... Those greater Philadelphia area business interests three weeks early. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate, but yeah, as you said, if it's just the, a, a pick in the fifties, you're not going to lose too much sleep over it. Um, probably a, a worthwhile price to pay for, for getting the signing done in the first place. But yeah, not, not Nikola Jokic. <laughs> <laughs> pick, what was he like? Pick 45 or something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you could miss out on the next Jokic or Ginobili, but it, it's very, very rare that those things uh, actually transpire that way. So yeah, wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, real quick. Last, last thing we want to touch on. Um, and it's going to be kind of a rapid fire segment. Is there, is there any main improvement you would like to see a Sixer make heading into the next season? Like what's, if, if you're, uh, you're Drew Hanlon and you had, you're in charge of everybody's player development this summer, what would be the, one of the main things you would have liked to see happen? I would, if I'm Drew, I'm working with Joel on <laughs> continuing to improve his, his passing and his willingness to pass. And you know, he, he's going to have to, if he wants the ball on the block, he's going to have to do a lot of fighting. And, and Miami showed that that was not a worthy pursuit because he was falling every third play in the final game. We saw him. He didn't look right physically. You know, he took Danny Green's knees out. He almost took Tobias Harris. I don't know if it was the mask, the finger, the face, the concussion symptoms or what, but he was getting beat up. He was diving into the stands. That was too hard. So we have already seen some language that he's looking to improve from the perimeter, maybe his handle um, so that I, I suppose in theory, he could catch the ball behind the arc, which would maybe space the floor for James Harden, who likes to attack a spread floor, um, but also allow Joel to have some more room to operate. I don't know what the thinking is. Is he going to drive from 25 feet away and kick? Is he going to try to finish at the rim from there? But I would like him to work on his passing because there were times where they could get him a touch and jumping to receive the ball, he could have kicked it back out to an open shooter. Now, his shooters let him down, certainly. Um, James Harden was not a willing catch-and-shoot player. Tobias Harris is a little slow on the trigger. Therese Max, he's developing there. He's still not a, a player who teams absolutely fear in terms of gravity. So Joel just trusting them and – continuing to make the right read even in a in a huge moment you know like even in a game five at home where you're down by six or seven you haven't had a ton of points and it feels like you should be exerting your will I'd still like to see him make the right pass if an open shooter is wide open rather than settle for those tough mid-range shots 
Yeah, um, and I, th I think Drew mentioned previously that one the, the primary focus for Joel this offseason was you know working off his off the dribble game and yep. kind of creating stuff off the dribble. So for for the reasons you mentioned, it's 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 a lot easier on his body to not have to take the pounding in the in the painted area down low and be able to initiate the offense from closer to the the arc and um we, we saw not really last year but in a lot of years past that Sixers would try to get him the ball in crunch time and they just didn't have good entry passers so it, it like the shot clock would wind down and maybe they'd finally get him to like eight seconds left and he'd have very little time to get a move going and he'd have to hoist some like off balance shot or something. And um, even with Harden last year, we saw Harden have trouble getting him the lobs when they were fronting. Well, yeah. But I'll, I'll throw it back to you. What what would you like to see? Uh, real quick, because we're almost out of time. But yeah, my my main thing would be Tyrese Maxey becoming more of like a a drive and kick threat. Um, he's going to be running the second unit when when Harden's out, and I know one of the things has always been to kind of mold him into more of a point guard because he's, he's traditionally more, more of a combo guard and they still need that him to be effective in that role alongside Harden. But my mind goes back to John Wall in his prime when he was just able to harness that elite speed and get into the paint, draw defenders, and then kick the guys in the corners. He was one of the best at uh, finding those guys in the corners. And Maxi has a, a good mentor in Harden to, to kind of work that area of his game like he he kind of adopted the hardened step back pretty quickly working together with him so Maybe. i'd like i'd like to see him also get that drive and kick game to the corners down um much more this season wall is also a terrific defender in his day yeah he was um excited to see the john wall um come back here this year i, I want to see if he has anything left in the tank um all right dave well this was a lot of fun appreciate you once again joining me this week to discuss uh all things Sixers and Sixers adjacent. Um, where can everybody find you online and your work? At Liberty Ballers. We'll work there. All right. Well, thanks, Dave. Um, and everyone else out there, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.